Chapter twenty five of Pushing to the Front by Horizon Sweat Marden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Luke Sartor. Chapter twenty five Clear Grit. Let fortune empty her whole quiver on me. I have a soul that, like an ample shield, can take in all and verge enough for more. Dryden. There's a brave fellow, there's a man of pluck, a man who's not afraid to say his say, though a whole town's against him. Longfellow. Our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. Goldsmith. The barriers are not yet erected which shall say to aspiring talent, Thus far and no farther. Beethoven Friends and comrades, said Pizarro, as he turned toward the south, after tracing with his sword upon the sand a line from east to west. On that side are toil, hunger, nakedness, the drenching storm, desertion and death. On this side, ease and pleasure. There lies Peru with its riches, here Panama and its poverty. Choose each man what best becomes a brave Castilian. For my part, I go to the south. So saying, he crossed the line and was followed by thirteen Spaniards in armor. Thus, on the little island of Gallo in the Pacific, when his men were clamoring to return to Panama, did Pizarro and his fellow volunteers resolved to stake their lives upon the success of a desperate crusade against the powerful empire of the Incas. At the time, they had not even a vessel to transport them to the country they wished to conquer. Is it necessary to add that all difficulties yielded at last to such resolute determination? Perseverance is a Roman virtue that wins each godlike act, and plucks success even from the spear-proof crest of rugged danger. When you get into a tight place, and everything goes against you, till it seems as if you could not hold on a minute longer, said Harriet Beecher Stowe, never give up, for that's just the place and time that the tide will turn. Charles Sumner said, Three things are necessary to a strong character. First, backbone. Second, backbone. Third, backbone. While digging among the ruins of Pompeii, which was buried by the dust and ashes from an eruption of Vesuvius, A.D. 79, the workmen found the skeleton of a Roman soldier in the sentry box at one of the city's gates. He might have found safety under sheltering rocks close by, but, in the face of certain death, he had remained at his post, a mute witness to the thorough discipline, the ceaseless vigilance and fidelity which made the Roman legionaries masters of the known world. The world admires the man who never flinches from unexpected difficulties, who calmly 
patiently and courageously grapples with his fate, who dies, if need be, at his post. Clear grit always commands respect. It is that quality which achieves, and everybody admires achievement. In the strife of parties and principles, backbone without brains will carry against brains without backbone. You cannot, by tying an opinion to a man's tongue, make him the representative of that opinion. At the close of any battle for principles, his name will be found neither among the dead nor among the wounded, but among the missing. The London Times was an insignificant sheet published by Mr. Walter, and was steadily losing money. John Walter, Jr., then only twenty-seven years old, begged his father to give him full control of the paper. After many misgivings, the father finally consented. The young journalist began to remodel the establishment, and to introduce new ideas everywhere. The paper had not attempted to mould public opinion, and had had no individuality or character of its own. The audacious young editor boldly attacked every wrong, even the government, whenever he thought it corrupt. Thereupon the public customs, printing, and the government advertisements were withdrawn. The father was in utter dismay. His son, he was sure, would ruin the paper and himself. But no remonstrance could swerve the son from his purpose to give the world a great journal which should have weight, character, individuality, and independence. The public soon saw that a new power stood behind the times, that its articles meant business, that new life and new blood and new ideas had been infused into the insignificant sheet, that a man with brains and push and tenacity of purpose stood at the helm, a man who could make a way when he could not find one. Among other new features, foreign dispatches were introduced, and they appeared in the Times several days before their appearance in the government organs. The leading article also was introduced to stay. The aggressive editor antagonized the government, and his foreign dispatches were all stopped at the outposts, while the ministerial journalists were allowed to proceed. But nothing could daunt this resolute young spirit. At enormous expense, he employed special couriers. Every obstacle put in his way, and all opposition from the government, only added to his determination to succeed. Enterprise, push, grit were behind the times, and nothing could stay its progress. Young Walter was the soul of the paper, and his personality pervaded every detail. In those days, only three hundred copies of the paper could be struck off in an hour by the best presses, and Walter had duplicate and even triplicate types set. Then he set his brain to work, and finally the Walter Press, throwing off 17,000 copies per hour, both sides printed, was the result. It was the 29th of November, 1814, that the first steam-printed paper was given to the world. Mean natures always feel a sort of terror before great natures, and many a base thought has been unuttered, many a sneaking vote withheld, through the fear inspired by the rebuking presence 
of one noble man. As a result, pure grit, character, has the right of way. In the presence of men permeated with grit and sound in character, meanness and baseness slink out of sight. Mean men are uncomfortable, dishonesty trembles, hypocrisy is uncertain. Lincoln, being asked by an anxious visitor what he would do after three or four years, if the rebellion were not subdued, replied, Oh, there is no alternative but to keep pegging away. It is in me, and it shall come out, said Sheridan when told that he would never make an orator as he had failed in his first speech in Parliament. He became known as one of the foremost orators of his day. When a boy, Henry Clay was very bashful and diffident, and scarcely dared recite before his class at school, but he determined to become an orator. So he committed speeches and recited them in the cornfields, or in the barn, with the horse and cows for an audience. If impossibilities ever exist, popularly speaking, they ought to have been found somewhere between the birth and death of Kitto, that deaf pauper and master of Oriental learning. But Kitto did not find them there. In the presence of his decision and imperial energy, they melted away. He begged his father to take him out of the poor house even if he had to subsist like the Hottentots. He told him that he would sell his books and pawn his handkerchief, by which he thought he could raise about twelve shillings. He said he could live upon blackberries, nuts, and filled turnips, and was willing to sleep on a hayrick. Here was real grit. What were impossibilities to such a resolute, indomitable will? Grit is a permanent, solid quality, which enters into the very structure, the very tissues of the Constitution. Many of our generals in the Civil War exhibited heroism. They were plucky and often displayed great determination. But Grant had pure grit in the most concentrated form. He could not be moved from his base. He was self-centered, immovable. If you try to wheedle out of him his plans for a campaign, he stolidly smokes. If you call him an imbecile and a blunderer, he blandly lights another cigar. If you praise him as the greatest general living, he placidly returns the puff from his regalia. If you tell him he should run for the presidency, it does not disturb the equanimity with which he inhales and exhales the unsubstantial vapor which typifies the politician's promises. While you are wondering what kind of creature this man without a tongue is, you are suddenly electrified with the news of some splendid victory, proving that behind the cigar and behind the face discharged of all tell-tale expression is the best brain to plan and the strongest heart to dare among the generals of the Republic. Lincoln had pure grit. When the illustrated papers everywhere were caricaturing him, when no epithet seemed too harsh to heap upon him, when his methods were criticized by his own party, and the generals in the war were denouncing his foolish confidence in Grant, and delegations were waiting upon him to ask for that general's removal, the great president sat with crossed legs and was reminded of a story. 
Lincoln and Grant both had that rare nerve which cares not for ridicule, is not swerved by public clamor, can bear abuse and hatred. There is a mighty force in truth, and in the sublime conviction and supreme self-confidence behind it, in the knowledge that truth is mighty, and the conviction and confidence that it will prevail. Pure grit is that element of character which enables a man to clutch his aim with an iron grip, and keep the needle of his purpose pointing to the star of his hope. Through sunshine and storm, through hurricane and tempest, through sleet and rain, with a leaky ship, with a crew in mutiny, it perseveres. In fact, nothing but death can subdue it, and it dies still struggling. The man of grit carries in his very presence a power which controls and commands. He is spared the necessity of declaring himself, for his grit speaks in his every act. It does not come by fits and starts. It is a part of his life. It inspires a sublime audacity and a heroic courage. Many of the failures of life are due to the want of grit or business nerve. It is unfortunate for a young man to start out in business life with a weak, yielding disposition, with no resolution or backbone to mark his own course, and stick to it, with no ability to say, no, with an emphasis, obliging this man by investing in hopeless speculation, and, rather than offend a friend, endorsing a questionable note. A little boy was asked how he learned to skate. Oh, by getting up every time I fell down, he replied. Whipple tells a story of Messenia, which illustrates the masterful purpose that plucks victory out of the jaws of defeat. After the defeat at Esling, the success of Napoleon's attempt to withdraw his beaten army depended on the character of Messenia, to whom the emperor dispatched a messenger, telling him, to keep his position for two hours longer at Aspern. This order, couched in the form of a request, required almost an impossibility. But Napoleon knew the indomitable tenacity of the man to whom he gave it. The messenger found Messenia seated on a heap of rubbish, his eyes bloodshot, his frame weakened by his unparalleled exertion during a contest of forty hours and his whole appearance indicating a physical state better befitting the hospital than the field. But that steadfast soul seemed altogether unaffected by bodily prostration. Half dead as he was with fatigue, he rose painfully and said courageously, Tell the emperor that I will hold out for two hours. And he kept his word. Often defeated in battle, said Macaulay of Alexander the Great. He was always successful in war. In the Battle of Marengo, the Austrians considered the day won. The French army was inferior in numbers and had given way. The Austrian army extended its wings on the right and on the left to follow up the French. Then, though the French themselves thought that the battle was lost, and the Austrians were confident it was won, Napoleon gave the command to charge, and, the trumpet's blast being given, 
the old guard charged down into the weakened center of the enemy, cut it in two, rolled the two wings up on either side, and the battle was won for France. Once, when Marshal Ney was going into battle, looking down at his knees which were smiting together, he said, You may well shake. You would shake worse yet if you knew where I am going to take you. It is victory after victory with the soldier, lesson after lesson with the scholar, blow after blow with the laborer, crop after crop with the farmer, picture after picture with the painter, and mile after mile with the traveler, that secures what all so much desire, success. A promising Harvard student was stricken with paralysis of both legs. Physicians said there was no hope for him. The lad determined to continue his college studies. The examiners heard him at his bedside, and in four years he took his degree. He resolved to make a critical study of Dante, to which he had to learn Italian and German. He persevered in spite of repeated attacks of illness and partial loss of sight. He was competing for the university prize. Think of the paralytic lad, helpless in bed, competing for a prize, fighting death inch by inch. What a lesson! Before his manuscript was published or the prize awarded, the brave student died. But his work was successful. Congressman William W. Crapo, while working his way through college, being too poor to buy a dictionary, actually copied one. Walking from his home in the village of Dartmouth, Massachusetts, to New Bedford, to replenish his store of words and definitions from the town library. Oh, the triumphs of this indomitable spirit of the conqueror! This it was that enabled Franklin to dine on a small loaf in the printing office with a book in his hand. It helped Locke to live on bread and water in a Dutch garret. It enabled Gideon Lee to go barefoot in the snow, half-starved and thinly clad. It sustained Lincoln and Garfield on their hard journeys from the log cabin to the White House. President Chadburn put grit in place of his lost lung, and worked thirty-five years after his funeral had been planned. Henry Fawcett put grit in place of eyesight, and became the greatest postmaster general England ever had. Prescott also put grit in place of eyesight, and became one of America's greatest historians. Francis Parkman put grit in place of health and eyesight and became the greatest historian of America in his line. Thousands of men have put grit in place of health, eyes, ears, hands, legs, and yet have achieved marvelous success. Indeed, most of the great things of the world have been accomplished by grit and pluck. You cannot keep a man down who has these qualities. He will make stepping stones out of his stumbling blocks and lift himself to success. At fifty, Barnum was a ruined man, owing thousands more than he possessed. 
yet he resolutely resumed business once more, fairly wringling success from adverse fortune, and paying his notes at the same time. Again and again he was ruined, but Phoenix-like, he rose repeatedly from the ashes of his misfortune, each time more determined than before. It is all very well, said Charles J. Fox, to tell me that a young man has distinguished himself by a brilliant first speech. He may go on, or he may be satisfied with his first triumph. But show me a young man who has not succeeded at first, and nevertheless has gone on, and I will back that young man to do better than most of those who have succeeded at the first trial. Cobden broke down completely the first time he appeared on a platform in Manchester, and the chairman apologized for him. But he did not give up speaking till every poor man in England had a larger, better, and cheaper loaf. See young Disraeli, sprung from a hated and persecuted race, without opportunity, pushing his way up through the middle classes, up through the upper classes, until he stands self-poised upon the topmost round of political and social power, scoffed, ridiculed, rebuffed, hissed from the House of Commons, he simply says, The time will come when you will hear me. The time did come, and the boy with no chance swayed the sceptre of England for a quarter of a century. One of the most remarkable examples in history is Disraeli forcing his leadership upon that very party whose prejudices were deepest against his race, and which had an utter contempt for self-made men and interlopers. Imagine England's surprise when she awoke to find this insignificant Hebrew actually Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was easily master of all the tortures supplied by the armory of rhetoric. He could exhaust the resources of the bitterest invective, he could sting Gladstone out of his self-control. He was absolute master of himself and his situation. You could see that this young man intended to make his way in the world. Determined audacity was in his very face. Handsome, with the hated Hebrew blood in his veins, after three defeats in parliamentary elections, he was not the least daunted, for he knew his day would come. Lord Melbourne, the great Prime Minister, when this gay young fop was introduced to him, asked him what he wished to be. Prime Minister of England, was his audacious reply. William H. Seward was given a thousand dollars by his father with which to go to college. This was all he was to have. The son returned at the end of the freshman year with extravagant habits and no money. His father refused to give him more, and told him he could not stay at home. When the youth found the props all taken out from under him, and that he must now sink or swim, he left home moneyless, returned to college, graduated at the head of his class, studied law, was elected governor of New York, and became Lincoln's great secretary of state during the Civil War. Garfield said, If the power to do hard work is not talent, it is the best possible substitute for it. The triumph of industry and grit, over low birth and iron fortune in America, the land of opportunity, 
ought to be sufficient to put to shame all grumblers over their hard fortune, and those who attempt to excuse aimless, shiftless, successless men, because they have no chance. During a winter in the War of 1812, General Jackson's troops, unprovided for and starving, became mutinous and were going home. But the general set the example of living on acorns, and then he rode before the rebellious line and threatened with instant death the first mutineer that should try to leave. The race is not always to the swift. The battle is not always to the strong. Horses are sometimes weighted or hampered in the race, and this is taken into account in the result. So, in the race of life, the distance alone does not determine the prize. We must take into consideration the hindrances, the weights we have carried, the disadvantages of education, of breeding, of training, of surroundings, of circumstances. How many young men are weighted down with debt, with poverty, with the support of invalid parents or brothers and sisters or friends? How many are fettered with ignorance, hampered by inhospitable surroundings, with the opposition of parents who do not understand them? How many around boys hindered in the race by being forced into a square hole? How many youths are delayed in their course because nobody believes in them, because nobody encourages them, because they get no sympathy and are forever tortured for not doing that against which every fibre of their being protests and every drop of their blood rebels. How many men have to feel their way to the goal through the blindness of ignorance and lack of experience? How many go bungling along from the lack of early discipline and drill in the vocation they have chosen? How many have to hobble along on crutches because they were never taught to help themselves, but have been accustomed to lean upon a father's wealth or a mother's indulgence? How many are weakened for the journey of life by self-indulgence, by dissipation, by life-sappers? How many are crippled by disease, by a weak constitution, by impaired eyesight or hearing? When the prizes of life shall be finally awarded, the distance we have run, the weights we have carried, the handicaps, will all be taken into account. Not the distance we have run, but the obstacles we have overcome, the disadvantages under which we have made the race, will decide the prizes. The poor wretch who has plotted along against unknown temptations, the poor woman who has buried her sorrows in her silent heart, and sowed her weary way through life, those who have suffered abuse in silence, and who have been unrecognized or despised by their fellow runners, will often receive the greater prize. The wise and active conquer difficulties by daring to attempt them. Sloth and folly shiver and sink at sight of toil and hazard, and make the impossibility they fear. I can't. It is impossible, said a foiled lieutenant to Alexander. Be gone, shouted the conquering Macedonian. There is nothing impossible to him who will try. 
were I called upon to express in a word the secret of so many failures among those who started out in life with high hopes, I should say unhesitatingly, they lacked will-power. They could not half-will. What is a man without a will? He is like an engine without steam, a mere sport of chance, to be tossed about hither and thither, always at the mercy of those who have wills. I should call the strength of will the test of a young man's possibilities. Can he will strong enough and hold whatever he undertakes with an iron grip? It is the iron grip that takes the stronghold on life. What chance is there in this crowding, pushing, selfish, greedy world, where everything is pusher or pushed, for a young man with no will, no grip on life? The truest wisdom, said Napoleon, is a resolute determination. An iron will without principle might produce a Napoleon, but with character it would make a Wellington or a Grant, untarnished by ambition or avarice. The undivided will, tis that compels the elements and wrings a human music from the indifferent air. End of chapter 25 Clear Grit Recording by Luke Sartor, Brisbane, Queensland